Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. The funny thing about Star Trek is there's no lawyers on the ship. You ever notice that? They're so enlightened in the future, there, there doesn't seem to be a real need for lawyers in Star Trek. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. So we've landed on the moon and maybe discovered there's life on Mars. And not only are we curious, some people are hoping to make money from outer space. Because for all of us, space is the next frontier. And the U.S. Congress just might make all of it possible. They just passed a bipartisan bill known as the Space Act that sets guidelines for how to do it. Next step is for President Obama to sign it into law or veto it. And all signs point to him signing it in short order. And if he does sign it, what sort of 21st century gold rush are we all looking at? Less than 60 years ago, the idea of humans going into outer space seemed like an impossible, wild, irrational fantasy. But once man set his first foot on the lunar soil, we've all been faced with a really practical question. How do all of us humans down here on Earth share space? How do we create a body of law that governs the great unknown? Life of the Law's Kirsten Jesuits Heidel has a story. Imagine it's 1957. It's the middle of the Cold War and fear is everywhere. Senator Joseph McCarthy's just spent years accusing people of being communists and spies. The Soviet missile crisis is on the horizon. The United States and the former Soviet Union are locked in an arms race. And there's a space race, too. When you look up at the sky in 1957, there's nothing up there but stars, planets, moons, and some space rocks. It's a vast, silent sea, utterly unexplored. The only thing anyone has seen orbiting the Earth is the moon. But the U.S. and the Soviet Union are desperately competing to see who will be first to launch a man-made satellite into orbit. For most people at the time, all of this seemed really abstract, if not fantastical. Aviation was just 50 years old. Going into space was something that only happened in science fiction. Until it wasn't. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. On October 4th, 1957, the former Soviet Union launched a polished metal sphere into low Earth orbit. It was just 23 inches in diameter and had four external radio antennae. But just like that, the first leg of the space race was over. The Soviets had beat the Americans. And then the so-called Sputnik crisis began. And when Sputnik was launched, it caused fear and panic, not only in, in the United States, but around the world. A lot of people were really fearful of what is that metal object in the sky and what is it going to do? That's Steve Mermina, a law professor at Georgetown University. Some of these current vibrations in Washington. Well, there's very profound concern here, Doug, about world opinion. The dominant conflict of our time, the Cold War, is at present, as everyone knows, in a state of balance between Russia and the West. Is it going to drop weapons? Is it going to deliver weapons? Is it going to threaten us as, as a race or a nation or as a species? ...threatening nations who grant bases to America. Those threats have not been taken very seriously, but now the world knows that it took a far more powerful projectile than America possesses to push that satellite into its orbit in space. In view of that, Russia's threat may be more effective now. And as a reaction to Sputnik, 
countries around the world started to get together and say, we need to study outer space and make some rules as to what can and cannot occur in outer space. The UN convened an ad hoc committee of nations. It was known as the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and its goal was to ensure that space would only be used for peaceful purposes. In 1967, the committee signed its first treaty. The treaty on principles governing the activities of states in the exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, better known as the Outer Space Treaty, and more than 100 countries around the world are party to it. So some people refer to it as the Magna Carta of space. By 1979, there are four more treaties. The Rescue Agreement, the Liability Convention, the Registration Convention, and the Moon Treaty. And no other treaties have been written since. In just over two decades, a whole new body of law was created. One that has big implications today. Take a bill just passed by Congress called the United States Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act of 2015, or the Space Act. This is Joanne Gabrinowitz, a veteran space lawyer. It's a bill that addresses asteroid mining, uh, space tourism, or um, uh, what we call human commercial space flight, and remote sensing. It's likely that President Obama will sign this bill into law. And when he does, it would regulate private companies doing anything from mining asteroids to commercial spaceflight. As activities continue to develop, then you begin to fashion what has to be done for that specific activity if it's going to be different than what has come before. But what came before? First, some disclosure. I'm a stone-cold nerd, and I'm really into space. Movies about space? I've seen most of them. Shelves full of sci-fi novels? Yep. Star Trek? I frackin' love it. Michael Monero is an attorney and scholar of international space law. Nerding out was what led him to this field. He was already a really big sci-fi fan, and then after law school he went to China on a fellowship. He saw in the news that the Chinese government was starting to get worried about U.S. involvement in space and the ramifications it would have on China. And he decided... To bold to go where no lawyer has gone before. The, the funny thing about Star Trek is there's no lawyers on the ship. You ever notice that? They're so enlightened in the future, there, there doesn't seem to be a real need for lawyers in Star Trek. So maybe there wasn't a lawyer on the USS Enterprise. But here on Earth, there's a lot of people interested in the laws that govern outer space. There's even an institute devoted to it the International Institute of Space Law. And every year they have a moot court competition for law students. This year, it was held at Georgetown University in DC. URA is not liable for the damage done to drop gun by the Air versus Sid one for three distinct reasons. One, Spider cannot prove- Audio's a bit fuzzy. It was taken from a video because the competition was close to reporters. And third, because the liability convention does not apply, we can look to the general principles of international law. It involved a hypothetical case between two made-up nations, the Sovereign People's Independent Democratic Republic, or SPIDER, and the United Republic of Adventura, or URA. According to the case, both nations wanted to mine from an asteroid called SID-1. After URA accidentally messed with its orbit, Sid-1 crashed into Dropgum, a fishing village in Spider. Point is, 
There's a lot of geeking out to do when it comes to space law. And all this geekery is based on other, more terrestrial laws. Here's Michael Monero. States undertake an activity. After a certain amount of time, there becomes a custom to that activity, a general consensus that there's a right way to do things. Eventually, that custom is elevated to the point where it has the legitimacy of a norm. And then, at some point, the states decide to write down their norms. Pretty standard. And space law followed the same path. The only big difference was that the people writing space law were moving really fast and making up rules for places no one had ever been before. Chris Johnson works for the Secure World Foundation. It's an NGO set up to prevent space from being another domain where war is waged. He says that the founding fathers of space law even looked to the Romans. They had to come up with these rules and and figure out, well, where does a state's uh, sovereignty begin from? And it actually goes back all the way back to Roman law, where the state said that they had sovereignty from the heavens all the way down to hell. So when the space age began, they thought, is this just a higher realm than aviation? And this is where it gets tricky. Tricky because suddenly the heavens had no upper limit. When you just like look out the window and look up, you think, where does state sovereignty end? And where does this freedom of outer space, this what they call uh, international commons, where does that begin? Good question. And that's the problem with space law. You're trying to impose rules on celestial bodies, on the infinite void. That's what's kind of still kind of mind-boggling. And that's when I first got into space law. It seemed like science fiction that there'd be something (laughs) that applies to planets and what we can do on other planets and in outer space. That's just the crazy, you know, reality of it. Which is why space law began by looking for answers on Earth. Joanne Gabrinowitz. We can look back to other parts of history. For example, the great age of exploration. They were going to places on the Earth that for them were just as new and adventurous as space is for us. And we learn from their experiences and then we adapt them to the current reality. Take the Space Act which now attempts to legislate private activities in space at the national level. It deals with liability for American space tourism companies and rights for U.S. businesses that extract resources from celestial bodies. But some people want an international agreement instead to ensure that all countries will apply space law the same way. If the Space Act is signed into law, it could open up a whole new era of space industry and a whole new era of disagreements about how humans should share outer space. Unlike many other areas of law, space law isn't set in stone yet. New rules are being written, and the old ones are constantly being tested. There was a case in Europe where there was somebody who claimed to own the sun because he bought it on the internet, and then there was somebody who got a sunburn, so he sued the guy who owned the sun. (laughs) That particular case was easily solved by turning to the Outer Space Treaty. Article 2 states that no one can claim any part of space. So, good news for the man who bought the sun, he couldn't be sued. But the bad news is, he never actually owned the sun. Michael Monero says what's truly amazing is that space law is so young, it's still like an unexplored frontier. The final frontier. And the rules we design today will impact our evolution across the solar system for millennia.
for Life of the Law. I'm Kirsten Jesuits Heidel. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rebecca Shear and edited by Annie Murphy with sound design by Shawnee Avaram. Howard Gelman is our engineer. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of Podcasts from American Public Media. Special thanks to Steve Nelson at American Public Media for his generosity of spirit and support. You can hear all of our episodes, stories about polyamorous love, lawyers who advertise on TV at 2 in the morning, and the ongoing trials of Lee Harvey Oswald, all at infiniteguest.org, lifeofthelaw.org, iTunes, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to hear episodes of Life of the Law on your favorite public radio station, give the manager a call and let them know they can get access to all of our stories on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we receive funding from the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, and the National Science Foundation. It's these dollars and the tax-deductible donations you make to Life of the Law that makes our investigative reports possible. Take a minute. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. There's a donate button on the top right corner. It just takes a minute, and we'll thank you in the credits of our next podcast. Next time on Life of the Law, a man's audio diary of his first year outside prison after 20 years behind walls. I get invited to dinner, we go over, we hang out, and like, who'd have thought, you know, that 20 years ago, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I first, you know, joined the game and started down that lifestyle that I would be, like, doing this work. That's next on Life of the Law. Thanks for sharing Life of the Law on Twitter, Facebook, rating us on iTunes, and hey, just tell someone. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say... <laughs> 